0: Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, how unsearchable are your judgments, and yet so often we claim arrogantly to know. How inscrutable are your ways, and yet often we develop a sense of having having you in a box. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us For these arrogant ways, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would overwhelm us with your grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, it's an embarrassing story, really, but it symbolizes what was one of the biggest struggles of scientific discovery in the modern world. For many centuries, people watched the rising and setting of the sun and concluded that the earth stood still and the sun moved around it. The earth, they thought, was the center of the universe. Some church leaders liked this idea because it seemed to confirm their idea that they were at the center of the world. They even found biblical justification for it. But then less than 500 years ago, Polish astronomer Nikolai Copernicus challenged this idea. He argued that the sun is at the center of the solar system and the earth revolves around it. Most people found this idea reprehensible. Church leaders called him a heretic. They all wanted desperately to believe that they were at the center of the universe and that everything else revolved around them It's the historical equivalent of being a teenager. In reality, this is actually a very human problem. Foreigners tell us that we Americans think that we're at the center of the world. Environmentalists warn us that mankind is entirely self-absorbed, and it will lead to our destruction. In spiritual circles, the tendency is for those who think they've heard the good news of the gospel, it's easy for them to slip into this notion that we are the only people who really matter to God. When it comes to the Jews, then, we have a problem. Because when we read our Old Testament, we see that they were called to be God's people. But now we are. And it seems to most of us that both can't be true. And so some Christians teach a replacement theology. The Jews have screwed up so badly as God's people that they've been simply replaced by the church. You snooze, you lose. Their day in the sun is over. Other Christians see that Jews are so integral to God's plan that it even shapes their world politic. I don't know if you're aware, but back in the 1980s, the author Hal Lindsey, who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, was a political advisor to the White House on national policy toward Israel. Some Christians are of the mentality that in order to hasten Christ's return, Americans need to lend tacit and unquestioned support to the policies of the current state of Israel, never questioning even when they act unjustly, even when they trample on the rights of Palestinians, some of whom are Christians, by the way. It's easy, easy for us to forget in our end times zeal that neither the prophets, the Jewish prophets, nor Jesus spared the people of Israel when they were guilty of injustice or inhumanity toward their neighbors. They warned of God's judgment again and again. Somehow the writers of scripture were simultaneously able to believe that the Jews were God's chosen people here to bring light to the world, light to the Gentiles, and yet often they stood under God's judgment because of their violence, injustice, or unrighteousness toward their neighbor. By contrast, 2,000 years of church history has been a sad story of hatred of Jews, ill treatment of those people. Early on, as the church became more Gentile than Jewish, many Christians began to develop a bloodlust toward the people they believed had killed Jesus. And the tragic irony of this stance is that we have somehow forgotten in 2,000 years that Jesus was a Jew. In fact, he is the Jewish Messiah. And all the while Christians are casting aspersion on the Jews for killing Jesus, they were gladly crawling into, the, into bed with Rome the power structure that had killed Jesus. It was their nails and their cross and their laws that was the real cause of Jesus' death. We always prefer to be with the winners rather than the losers, I suppose. And it's this same winner's mentality that seems to be behind the current blind support of Israel's policies by many evangelicals. We seem to be a lot more comfortable with Jews now that they're no longer victims, now that they're more willing to take up arms against their enemies rather than suffer at their hands. The Jews who suffered the humiliations of the Inquisitions, the pogroms, the Holocaust, seemed like a weak people that we didn't want to identify with. But now they're a people of power who take their destiny in their own hands. And we like that somehow. Somehow. Over a century ago, Leo Tolstoy told of a conversation he had with a Jewish rabbi about the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. They were both amazed at the remarkable parallels they found between the teaching of Jesus and similar passages in the Hebrew Talmud and Hebrew scriptures. When they came to Jesus saying, resist not evil, the rabbi said, we have similar teachings, And then he asked with a slight smile, do Christians obey this command? Tolstoy said, I had nothing to say in reply, especially since at that time Christians, far from turning the other cheek, were smiting Jews on both cheeks. Stanley Hauerwas says that the Jews are God's joke on the world, reminding us that God is faithful even when we are not that God's power is found in weakness, that his ways are not our ways. Somehow, historically, Christians have managed to vacillate between these two extremes of outright ha- hatred and murder and antisemitism, to a tacit approval of everything the nation of Israel does, no matter how unjust. And both of these extremes, it seems to me, miss the subtlety and the wonder of the position of the Apostle Paul found in Romans chapter 11. Like the prophets of old, the Apostle Paul is both realistic and hopeful. Paul's realism is grounded in the frank assessment that the people of God have failed to keep covenant with God, and that means God's judgment. But Paul is simultaneously hopeful because he knows that the story of scripture from the very start has been less about our unfaithfulness than about God's faithfulness, about God's grace and love toward his people who fail often. In fact, rather than give up, God has been so intent on keeping covenant with his people that he has narrowed Israel down to a point. That point is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has become the true Israelite who takes on himself the whole covenant of God, the responsibility for Israel's covenant, and he redeems that. Jesus is God being faithful for Israel and for us and then transferring that covenant faithfulness back to us. The message of the gospel according to Paul is this. In spite of our unfaithfulness, God is so stubbornly in love with us that he insists on shouldering the responsibility for us, paying for our sins, redeeming our unfaithfulness, and bringing us new life. That's why Christians can only speak of the gospel as being an act of God. That's why Christians can't boast about their salvation. That's why we can't believe that we're somehow elite, that we're the center of the universe because salvation is initiated not by us but by God it is fulfilled not by us but by God and then it is applied to us not by our own efforts but by God's efforts Paul is realistic then about the danger of judgment because he knows our capacity for unfaithfulness both Jew and Gentile but he can be simultaneously filled with hope because he knows and has experienced God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. He knows that God will fulfill his promises. Now that's a juggling act that's very difficult to manage. We so desperately want this salvation thing to be neat and clean. We want to know who's in and who's out. And we, so, as a result, we tend to line up on either side of, the, of judgment or grace. Like a bad divorce, Christians have managed to divide up the possessions of the kingdom, with some of us taking the grace and others taking the judgment. One group preaches hellfire and brimstone to anybody who doesn't look like them. The other side teaches anything goes, an attitude that implies that God doesn't really take sin seriously anyway. But for the Apostle Paul, neither of these extremes are possible because in the cross of Jesus Christ God has bridged the gap between judgment and grace because only in Jesus Christ we can have both justice and the mercy of God. Karl Barth reminds us that God's judgment is a serious matter for Christians not because we are the vehicles of God for implementing his judgments in the world not because we delight in the thought of damnation God's judgment is a serious matter for Christians because Jesus Christ took the full brunt of God's judgment on the cross for the sake of the whole world. Likewise, Bart reminds us that grace, the grace of God is a serious matter for Christians as well, not merely because it's been lavished upon us and nobody else, but because in Jesus Christ, the love and grace and mercy of God is offered to the entire world So Christians are not in a position to punish the Jews for their unbelief because Jesus already took that punishment upon himself. But we must likewise not ignore the Jews because Jesus loved them enough to die for them. Paul asks this question. Has God given up on the people of Israel? And his reply is unequivocal out of the question absolutely not Now, some people think that Paul is just being sentimental much like you and I would be when we hold out hope for our lost loved ones that they might come to salvation but really it's more than that for Paul Paul isn't just pining for his own people here the whole question of the book of Romans is a question of whether God will keep his promises whether God lives up to what he, he offers us in, in the, the covenants of grace. If God gave up on Israel, Paul says, because they were unfaithful, what hope does that give us? Because we know our own propensity for unfaithfulness. How do we know that God won't change his mind again? How can we be assured that the salvation offered in Jesus Christ won't be revoked? God's character is at stake here for Paul. In the city of Rome in the late 40s of the first century AD, Emperor Claudius had the Jews expelled. He drove them out of Rome. And the first century church, which was at first largely Jewish, very quickly became dominated by Gentiles. Now the Jewish element was a minority in the church and in the city of Rome the Jews were nearly non-existent. Some of the Gentile Christians took this as a point of pride. They took it as a sign that God had given up on those people and has replaced them with us. But Paul insists that this arrogant anti-Jewish viewpoint is not consistent with the Gospel. First of all he says to this Gentile audience, don't forget, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul thinks that the presence of some Jews in the Christian church is an adequate reminder that God has not given up on the people of Israel. He says, remember the story of Elijah. Elijah cried out to God against his own people for being unfaithful. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me what's God's answer to him I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal so too, Paul says at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace the truth of God's covenant has never been that it was an overwhelming success the truth of God's covenant is that there has always been a faithful remnant This week, I read a review of an upcoming Christian movie and a best-selling Christian book. And in both cases, the Christian reviewer indicated with hope that these might be the breakthrough in our culture, the breakthrough that we really need to get noticed as Christians. They suggested that Christians really need to have a success story in order to make our culture sit up and take notice of us. But I think that Paul and the gospel teach something different. Our success story as God's people is 400 years of slavery. Our success story, according to Paul, is the cross of Jesus Christ. We're called to have an impact on the world not because we're the most powerful, not because we're the most intelligent, not because we're the best and the brightest, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not because we're the majority in society, The power of God has always been demonstrated with a faithful remnant, a colony of people who live under the rule of God. And Christian history demonstrates, I think, again and again that when Christians take on power, when Christians become the majority, they forget the gospel. The power of the cross is different than the power of Rome. In fact, God's power comes when Rome crucifies Jesus. God's power is demonstrated by having not by having a Christian at the helm of the Roman Empire or in the White House. God's power is demonstrated when a tiny little Albanian nun devotes her life to caring for the poor and needy of India. God's power is demonstrated when a poor black Baptist preacher calls his people to cry out for justice while responding nonviolently to their oppressors. Paul says that the current unbelief of Israel has a purpose to bring jealousy among the Israelites. And yet that jealousy will not be evoked with our force, our forceful ways, with our arrogant ways. They need to see something different about people who have come under the mercy of God. This gives Gentiles an opportunity for Gentiles to come into the kingdom to permit those wild branches to be grafted into this gnarled old olive tree of Israel but then those branches of Israel which were broken off through unbelief will once again Paul hopes be grafted in Paul says they did not stumble so as to be to fall beyond recovery in Paul's mind once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in Once Gentiles have responded to the grace of God, this will create a glorious opportunity for the return of Israel. And so Paul says with with real hope, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? The mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ God's judgment becomes an opportunity for grace. Paul says, you Gentile Christians, don't be arrogant about your salvation. You could be broken off just as easily if you forget to be faithful. For God has used Israel's stumbling in order to bring you the hope of grace. But even then, Paul says, God has not given up on Israel. It is not in the nature of God to give up. Now, we want things to be a lot neater than this. We just want to know who's in and who's out. Somehow we've become preoccupied with knowing who's saved and who's damned. But Paul hints here in Romans chapter 11 at something that I'm terrified even to mention because it works against our own instincts of justice and even vindictiveness. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery sisters and brothers so that you will become conceited Israel has experienced a hardening of heart until the fullness of Gentiles come in and so all Israel will be saved Paul is pointing to an outpouring of God's grace that is beyond our imagining not because of the goodness of Israel not because of the righteousness of the Gentiles but because of God's own inscrutable love and because God always keeps his word for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I think Paul is hinting here, and I might get stoned for saying it, that we had better brace ourselves for the fullness of God's grace. It will surprise every one of us. The extent to which God will offer salvation to humankind might overwhelm and astonish every one of us. We know already that our salvation has come to us in spite of our rebellion, against reason, and against all hope. Paul says, get ready, brace yourself. God isn't finished surprising us with how far his love can reach. And so Paul says in Romans 11, Just as you were in the past disobedient to God and have received mercy through their disobedience, so in the same way they are disobedient so that now through the mercy shown to you, they may receive God's mercy as well. For God has imprisoned all people in their disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. It's hard to know what Paul means when he says all but I think he's hinting at something magnificent that is often not part of our gospel understanding he says that this is beyond our understanding our comprehension oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how beyond our understanding are his paths Something within us doesn't like this kind of ambiguity. We don't want God's judgments to be unsearchable. We don't like the idea that we might not be the center of God's universe. We're troubled at the thought that Paul says, in their disobedience, God might still have mercy on them all. And yet, if we understand the gospel at all, we've come to know that our salvation has come in exactly the same way, we have nothing to contribute in spite of our rebellion God has mercy on us what Paul says is that God's ways are beyond us that his judgments are unsearchable and that we live with hope that everything that exists comes from him exists through him and exists for him and to him belongs all glory God intends to bring about his glory in offering salvation to everyone. I read a story this week of a young girl named Cristina who left her poor Brazilian village for a better life in the big city. Her mother's heart was broken because she knew the dangers and temptations of the city and what her beautiful daughter might be brought to in order to survive So the mother took what little money she had and purchased a bus ticket for Rio de Janeiro. And in the city, she went to a photo booth, took hundreds of small black and white photos of herself until her money ran out. Armed with these photographs, the mother went into seedy bars, nightclubs, hostels, any place her daughter might go to find money to survive. And at each of these filthy places, the mother posted this tiny photograph of herself with a note written on back. When she finally ran out of photos, she had to return to her village without her daughter. Months passed and nothing was heard. But then one night, her daughter, Christina, found herself coming down the stairs of a squalid hotel, having sold herself to a man to buy food. And her eye caught a familiar face, a photograph stuck to a mirror. When she picked up the photograph and turned it over, on the back was written in in an invitation, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter, just come home. And she did. Paul says that Jesus is the very image of God, crucified for the salvation of the world. And on the cross, God has written this invitation, an invitation to every one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Just come home. In the name of the Father